What is up? Holy cow. Woo! Take note, other campuses. That's the type of... Start it over. That's the type of welcome. I'm out of breath. You guys got me verklempt here. Thank you for that welcome. Hey, let's do this. Let's say hi to Lakewood and Littleton and Arvada and Evergreen. And can we give the most gracious round of applause to all the men and women at our God Behind Bars campuses? We love you, ladies and gentlemen. Love you, love you, love you. So, of course, we've already been talking about it. It's Olympic season. How many of you are summer Olympic people? Nice. How many of you winter Olympic people? You're done. Get out. I'm just kidding. I love you all. I'm a summer Olympic guy. I love everything about the summer. I love the swimming the most. Michael Phelps is not human. I'm waiting for him to just like rip off his face and be whatever he is because it's not human, right? I love the track and field probably second most. I used to love gymnastics until my all-time favorite gymnast uh, retired four years ago. Do you guys remember this amazing female gymnast named Sean Johnson? Very dainty, very ladylike, very feminine. Any of you not know who Sean Johnson, the female dainty gymnast is? Let's go ahead and put a picture of her up because I want to honor her for all of her gold medals. <laughs> just want to honor her. I'm a, I'm a person of honor. I feel like it's, it's my duty, just dainty and very just graceful and just full of female poise that comes with gymnastics. And yeah, I just, you know, gymnastics will never be the same for me now that Sean Johnson, female gymnast, is retired. Ah. Uh, I'm kidding. On a serious note, though, this happens to me every four years, especially during the Summer Olympics, because I watch a lot of it. I start to re-up and I start to well up yet again with pride for the nation that God sovereignly allowed me to be born into. I don't know what your theology is, but I can tell you definitely what my theology is, is that we were not only chosen sovereignly where we would be born, we were also chosen the era in which God sovereignly saw fit to have us born. And the fact that he chose and allowed us to be born as Americans in the greatest time to be alive on planet Earth is no small responsibility. And I absolutely love it. And I know some of you are thinking, hey, this isn't the greatest time to be alive in America. And I would just respectfully ask you to maybe step back and take a breath for a minute. And despite all of the challenges and difficulties that our country is facing right now, we live in the single most beautiful and amazing country on planet Earth earth country on planet earth yes right do we not America I love it but there is a lot going on right now and as we enter into week four of this series that we've titled birthright I'm going to get a bit nuanced with Ephesians chapter one and I'm going to look at a current event in our country right now that's extremely heated and it's polarizing and it's it's something that the minute I start to bring up what we're going to talk about, it's going to evoke some emotion in all of us for different reasons. I want to talk uh, in week four, as we look at this idea of adoption, I want to talk about the issue of race. And I've got an extremely difficult job to do right now. And when I was sitting under the weight and the tension this week, preparing a message talking about race and what's going on in our country, I, I, I thought back to several months ago when I saw a pretty uh, funny deal on Facebook. So put that up because this is how I felt all week about the job that I have to do. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that's what I feel like. I feel like talking about the issue of race. I feel like a white guy walking a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. And if I do anything wrong to the left, I'm going to fall and really destroy myself. And if I say anything wrong to the right, I'm going to do something wrong and destroy myself. So I'm asking you for some grace. 
I'm asking you to suspend some of the maybe judgment that you have on some of the things that I have to say, because we all walk in here with different ideas about how things should be in our country and how things like this issue of race should play out and who's at fault and who's right and who's wrong. And what I want to do is get past all of that. And I want to let the gospel do in us what only the gospel can do in us, which is to call us to be the most radical, loving people on planet Earth. Can you guys real quick pray for me and pray with me at all of our campuses. Like, I don't want, I'm very confident in the content that I have for this message, but equally important is my tone. You guys agree? It's not just enough with an issue like this to have good content. It's also my spirit. And so I'm going to pray two quotes of prayers from King David. And I have been praying these on repeat all week, but will you pray with me? Heavenly father, I pray now that you would set a guard over my mouth. O Lord, And that you would keep watch over the door of my lips. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Holy Spirit, speak. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So if you're new with us or visiting or you've missed some weeks, we're in this series, week four of Birthright. We're going through Ephesians chapter one for six straight weeks, and we are just looking at the five things that right out of the shoots, the apostle Paul says, listen, if you have been born again, Jesus gives us this term in John chapter three, that if a, unless a man is born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He obviously wasn't talking about physical and natural birth. He was talking about a spiritual rebirth. Paul calls this in second Corinthians five, being a new creation in Christ. And Paul says, the minute that you have by faith uh, accepted the grace of Jesus Christ, you instantly, you haven't earned it, you haven't deserved it, you don't have a waiting period where you're being vetted based on your morality or your behavior, you are instantly, number one, a saint. You just get sainthood right off the bat. And number two, we talked about this in week two, he says, before the foundations of the world, God chose you. Meaning he knew the depths of your potential depravity and he knew the depths of the beauty that you would have and everything in between in this lifetime. And God still looked at us and said, let there be light. That's how much he loves you. And then in week three, how awesome is Jesse Davis? Did she not just do an unbelievable job last week? We are so blessed to have her as a part of this church. And she talked about this third birthright, which is because of the cross of Jesus Christ, God now sees you, if you were born again, as perfectly holy and perfectly blameless, regardless of the type of day or week that you just had. And that is unbelievably good news. And now we get to this fourth birthright. And I wish I could spend weeks doing a whole series because I've studied way more about this topic than I'm able to give tonight, especially on such a nuanced topic like this issue of race and racism. But we get to this fourth one called adoption, and I want to read it. We're going to go back to Ephesians chapter one. I'm going to mix it up. It's kind of like, you know, when you're, you do the same exercise in the gym too long, eventually your body quits responding. And we've been reading out of the uh, English Standard Version for the last three weeks. And so I want to mix it up and we're going to read this this week from the message. Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Paul says this. I, Paul, am under God's plan as an apostle, a special agent of Christ Jesus, writing to the faithful believers in Ephesus. He says, I greet you with the grace and peace poured into our lives by God, our Father and our Master, Jesus Christ. How blessed is God? And what a blessing he is. He is the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the highest places of blessings in him. Long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind. He had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made, as Jess talked about last week, whole and holy by his love. Then he gets a bit Star Wars here. Long, long ago, 
He decided, and here's the word, to adopt us into the family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. God wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. And like I said before, we could talk for weeks just about the beautiful and staggering implications that come with this predestined idea of adoption that God knew he would implement before the foundations of the world. But I felt so compelled because of what's going on in our country right now and some of the animosity and tension that's been rehashed yet again because of so much of the history, the 400-year history that we have that revolves around race, especially as it specifically relates to, to, to white America and African Americans. It's powerful and it's real and it's tense. And I believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And I believe there is no other hope for the world. And I believe that we're called to be first responders to be the greatest people with the greatest news on planet earth who show up first to places where everybody else wants to run and hide from the tough stuff. That's what we as gospel people are called to. And so as we talk about racism and how it affects our country and what the church can do to be agents of light in such a dark time, I want you to understand this. Racism is one of the most subtle yet popular toys on the devil's playground. Do you not agree with that? It's one of the most subtle yet pervasive and popular toys on the devil's playground. Racism in all shapes, all sizes, forms is fundamentally opposed to and completely antithetical to the gospel. Those two cannot play together at all on the same playground. It is a virtual impossibility to be a gospel person and to allow any crevice in your heart of racism or bigotry or prejudice to exist. But here's the problem. All of us, to a certain degree, struggle with this. And I know, I know instantly some of you are, are defensive right now. Because in our American 400-year story, that word racist carries so many uh, evil connotations like we hear the word racist and all of you are going, well, that's not me. Cause you're thinking KKK, right? You're thinking lynchings back in the late 1800s or even in the 1900s. That's what we go to when we hear the word racist. So you're, you're already absolving yourself and you're going, well, this is, you know, I might go get some coffee or I'll wait for the awesome worship team to come back up. Cause that's just not, you, you, here's what you say. I've said it many times before I, I, I learned some things about God. I said, I don't see color. I'm colorblind, Right. And when we say that, that's a, that's a, that's a beautiful thing to say because we know what your, your heart is and what you mean. But can I tell you, God never asked us to be colorblind. Can I remind us that God has sovereignly used pigment to be the, the paint on his palette of creation to paint his most beautiful picture and story? Do you understand that color is a gift? Do you understand that like if you're like me and you're a white person to not have people that are red and yellow and black and brown in, in my life, if I was to not have those people in my world, I am forfeiting some of the life and life to the fullest that Jesus came to give me. You know, the book of Revelation says that when all of this wraps up and we're done having an incredible meal, do you know what we're going to do next? People of all races and tribes and languages are going to come together and we're going to just start worshiping God together. It's going to be much like this, except a much more diverse room than we have currently at Red Rocks Church. It's going to be a beautiful thing. As soon as Jesus died on the cross with blood-stained ink, that he wrote from his own death, he adopted all of creation back to him. 
See, prior to the cross, just to give you some 101 quick, simple history, God does what he always does. He started his garden or his plan with just a seed. That's God. God's a seed time God and a harvest time God. He always plants a seed to get a big harvest. And when it came to redeeming us back to him, he used this one group of people, this one tribe, this one strand of DNA in our story, this group of people called the Jews to be the seed. Now they thought they were going to be the only children. And this is where we get a lot of the problem because as soon as God through the cross of Jesus Christ introduced adoption to the world, the Jews didn't know what to do because they loved the only child gig. Who wouldn't, right? Getting all the focus, getting all the attention, being the chosen one, right? Being everything fixated on you. Who doesn't want to be that? And all of a sudden, Jesus dies on the cross and goes, guess what? My salvation and redemption, it's for everyone on the globe. And I love everyone equally. And God, unlike us, does not have one ounce of prejudice in him. And so what happened is the early church got started. And if you really study the inception of the early church, the enemy was trying to do to the early church what he always loves to do, to abort it. He wanted it to stop. He wanted it to be squashed instantly. And you know the most powerful tool he used in his arsenal to try and destroy the early church? Disunity by the way of racism. All of a sudden, Jesus dies and they start this thing called the church. And now the Romans are supposed to break bread with the Greeks and the Greeks are supposed to break bread with the Jews and the Jews are supposed to get this. This was big time racial hostility. They were supposed to break bread in the same homes with Samaritans. Remember, that was Jesus's great call. To go to Rome and to go to Samaria and to go to the ends of the earth. Well, the Jews and the Samaritans, you think what the racial tension we have in our country is. It's powerful from our history. You should read the history between the Jews and the Samaritans. And now because of the cross, Jesus is saying, I want you all to break bread at the same table together and pray together and do life together. And the enemy knew he had an in to come and try and destroy the church. That's how powerful racism is when a church doesn't know what to do with it. And we have a high honor and privilege and responsibility to know what to do with this issue of racism. And I want to hopefully calm our hearts a little bit because of such a difficult subject. And I want to let you know that if you think, hey, you know what? I, I definitely am not a racist. I know I'm not a racist or anything, but, but we're all born with prejudice. You understand that? That's been happening since Genesis chapter 4. It's a protective measure. It was passed on to us from our first father that we call Adam. It's a result of sin. All hell broke loose on planet Earth. And so we naturally start to gravitate and flock to those that look, think, act, talk, dress, most like us, right? It's in our human nature. It's these natural prejudices that we are born with. And listen to me, it's okay to be prejudiced. It is not okay to continue to be prejudiced. It is not okay to let prejudice grow up. Because after prejudice hits puberty, you know what it's called? Racism. And prejudice is burst out of natural fear. But you know what racism is? It's when fear graduates to malice and anger and hostility. And when we have that in the world, we get nowhere, right? Now, let's take that a step further. When it's in the church, the hope of the world, what do we have? The worst possible scenario. It's no surprise that's what the enemy wanted to try and use to destroy the church. And so can, can I just bless your heart for a minute? Because if some of you are going, again, that's not my struggle. I've looked into my heart. It's okay, that's fine. But can I tell you if, you, if you like me would admit, I'm still a work in progress. 
I still find myself, I have a deep biblical gospel conviction against prejudice and bigotry and racism. And I will still sometimes be watching something on TV and have a thought about someone outside of my race. And I'm like, oh my word, where did that come from? God, I am so sorry. That's not you. That's the enemy trying to get in my heart. That's the enemy trying to bring some hostility and some anger and some prejudice and some bias. Why? Out of fear. I will not let that be a part of my heart. But can I tell you, if it's still a struggle for you, can you at least understand that you're in some powerful company? There's a guy by the name of the Apostle Peter. I talked about him two weeks ago. And you remember Jesus said, hey, you're going to be in charge of the church. There's going to be a lot of people running it, but you're going to be the chief guy. And we know that Jesus is God. And so we know that Jesus knew absolutely every part of the Apostle Peter's heart. The good stuff, the bad stuff, and everything in between, right? He knew every ounce of Peter's heart. And God said this, you're going to run the church. And do you know what God knew about Peter that Peter didn't even know about himself? That a few decades after the church got started, that some of Peter's racist tendencies would creep back up. And one of his subordinates, a guy by the name of Paul, would have to call him on it. Let's just do this. Let's just read about it. Later, Paul writes in the book of Galatians chapter 2, when Peter came to Antioch, I had, a, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Listen to me. Racism is clearly in the kingdom of God and always out of line. Just in case we needed to clear that up. He says this. Here's the situation. My parents went away for a week's vacation and uh, they left the key. Sorry, I had to do that. For some of you will appreciate that. Here we go. Moving on, sorry. He says, here's the situation. Earlier, Peter, before certain persons came from James in Jerusalem, where all the Jews were, says, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews. But when the conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. Do you see what's happening here? Let's stop right there and let me just give you some quick history because I want you to sit under the weight of if it can happen to this guy, can it not be a part of any of our hearts if we're not careful? This is the leader of the church. This church at this point is blowing up. It's growing leaps and bounds. This guy, by default of the growth of the early church, has become a major power player all throughout the Middle East. This guy is a deeply powerful person. And here's what's even crazier. God gave one guy in the church in the last 2,000 years his vision about the Gentile church and that God through the cross was going to adopt and accept everyone of all races. Do you know who the guy who got that vision was in Acts chapter 10? Peter. All we can do is trust this book that we read. And all you can do is listen to me every other week and and hope that I get this thing right as a flawed, imperfect human being. That's what we have to go off of. He got a vision about God's heart for race. And and just so you guys know, I've been picking on vegetarians for the last um, 42 years. And the vision involved meat. Yeah, come on. Woo, now we're preaching, right? All of these different animals were coming down from heaven and and they were animals that prior to the new covenant weren't kosher with the Jewish people. And Peter was a Jew, right? And God's trying to show him, hey, I've made these animals now clean. And what he was really trying to show him is, hey, every human being from every tribe, language, color, ethnic background and pigment of skin, every single one is beautiful and perfect and right and okay. This is the garden that before the foundations of the earth, I always wanted to paint and now we get to paint it. If anybody had no right to ever fall back into this racist, racist kind of tendencies, even when the heat was on, like all his old Jewish boys were coming back and they still believed in Jesus plus circumcision, right? It was Jesus plus something else. And Peter knew that. 
And so all of a sudden he quietly gets up from his old Gentile friends and goes, guys, sorry, my bad, but I got to go sit with these guys because it's going to go bad for me if they know that I'm with you guys. And this is the guy who got a vision about how God feels about those Gentiles and still has the audacity to get up and walk to the other table. You understand that? And my, my point is simply this. We can't let our pride or our defensiveness because racism is such a hostile word in our cultural context. We can't let that get in the way from being freed up to peer into maybe some of the darkest parts of our heart and go, God, is there anything left in my heart that is not gospel centric and oriented to you? And if so, would you please take that from me? God, if there's some animosity or some feelings about people that don't have the same pigment or nationality or skin or cultural context as I do, God, would you please teach me to get through that? Because God, I wanna share your heart for humanity. God, I want to be an, an agent of help and healing and mercy and hope and life. Don't let that get in the way. Paul would go on to say this after he says what he said about Peter. He said, that's how fearful Peter was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, he says, and this is what happens when leaders go wrong, the rest of the Jews in Antioch, and that's why I want to be on the right side of this subject so bad as one of your pastors. He says, the rest of the Jews in Antioch church joined in that hypocrisy because racism of any form to any degree, make no bones about it, is always hypocritical. So that even Barnabas, he says, even Barnabas was swept away along in the charade. Barnabas was Paul's right hand man, his teaching pastor. Barnabas spent the last decade completely ministering to Gentiles. And now he spends a little bit of time in Antioch. The Jews show up and all of a sudden Barnabas is going over to the Jews table to be safe and comfortable and convenient and expedient. You see what's happening? These are amazing men of God. These are five-star generals in the redemptive story of God, and they still have a bent towards this type of behavior. Which means the enemy loves, loves, loves to use that same type of stuff in us. There's this term that, again, it's going to evoke emotion at all of our campuses when you hear me say this. Whatever emotion it is, you're going to have an instantaneous thought and a judgment about this term. It's this term, white privilege. Y'all familiar with it, right? If you've been American for three seconds, you know that term right now. It's been brought up again and rehashed again, and it's become relevant again. White privilege. And I'm not here to say much about that. Wrong platform. You're, you're all adults. You all have your, your thoughts, and that's, that's your thing. And I'm not here to, 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 to talk you into the fact that white privilege is real or to talk you into the fact that white privilege is this, this thing to keep uh, racial tension high and keep us separated. You guys can make your own distinction. But what I will scream from the rooftops without blinking, and I will say it boldly, and I will say it proudly as one of your pastors, is that with, with any kind of privilege always comes responsibility. You guys agree with that? With any privilege always comes responsibility. And I'm not going to talk to white privilege, but here's what I am going to talk to, gospel privilege. The minute you got called saint and yet did nothing to earn it or deserve it. The minute that God said, at the height of your rebellion, I chose you as much in spite of you as I did because of you. The minute you got called holy and blameless for an eternity because Jesus was holy and blameless in your place, you instantly received something that I think we need to start a new hashtag with. Gospel privilege. One full of hope. One full of hope. The minute you said, by faith, I receive your saving work, you got such an unfair, unbalanced, one-sided gift from God that our responsibility now to act on that is through the roof. 
And there's one word the New Testament uses more powerfully than other to define what our responsibility, what our gospel privilege should call us to. And I'm going to read it right now. It's this word reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter five. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone is born again or is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. He says, all this is from God who did what? He reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then what's he do? After he goes first, what's he do? He then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Do you hear that language? Do you hear that responsibility? And then he says this, as though God were actually making his appeal through us. In this time of racial tension in our country, when everyone on the media and everyone in different circles is trying to get everybody to be mad and hostile and scared, do you know what we're called to do as agents of reconciliation? We're called to run right into the middle of it and be people of mercy. I'm pretty sure if I read Romans right, God and government is called to hand, handle justice. You know what we're called to? You know what our lane is? It's mercy, radical agents of reconciliation. And so the question that I, I end with in this weekend talk is this. What does that look like practically in the area of race? What's it look like for a gospel person who has a deep conviction about gospel privilege that we get to walk in? What's it look like to be a reconciler in the area of race, no matter what color you are in this church? And I'm going to give you three quick, simple things. And they're not exhaustive. It's not holistic. I'm not telling you everything. I'm telling you three things that you can literally walk out of here today and you can implement immediately. And it can be a game changer for the local church to our nation right now. And I want Red Rocks to be that. And the first one is this. You've got to be intentional about your tables. What did Peter do? The minute there was some political heat on him, the minute there was going to be a bit of persecution from his old school fellas, the minute he was going to sit under some judgment because of his newfound beliefs about racial acceptance, what did he do? He did the opposite of what the kingdom of heaven does. Do you know the minute Jesus died on the cross, the angels in heaven, I just pictured him going over to the table where we're going to have the marriage supper of the lamb and they had to pull it out like you do at Thanksgiving when you're having family over and they had to put thousands of new leaves in it because the table just got so much bigger like that. And this is what we're called to as agents of reconciliation, to be intentional about the, the table. Not only should it constantly be adding new leaves to it because new people are sitting at our table, but it should look more and more diverse. And that typically won't happen unless you take the initiative. Unless you're a first responder. Unless you go, hey, I don't care what's going on in our country. I don't care what color my skin is, what color their skin is. I'm going to be an agent of reconciliation and hope and mercy and love and acceptance in life. I want my table to be diverse and big. That's the heart of God. I've got some friends named Drew and Gina. They've been faithful Red Rockers for a lot of years. And they've been amazing friends to Rachel and I. And in my table, in my circle of friends... They're, to me, the highest example that I glean from and get inspiration from when it comes to how intentional they were about what their table looks like. And I want you to hear it from them. Watch this. I 
I feel like every time you trust God with something big, then the next time it's a little bit easier. And so we've had some practice mm -hmm. um, trusting him. So this time we were able to look back and say, he's always been faithful. Well, I've always wanted to adopt. It's always been in my family. My sister's adopted, my aunt's adopted, my nephew's adopted. So I grew up very much, um, adoption and biological children were kind of an either or in my mind, not like a, a B, one or the other. I thought we would have a biological child first and Gina couldn't get off her mind that she felt like we were supposed to adopt first. It came down to about three little boys and we just said, God, we do not want to like shop for a kid. Tell us, tell us who, which one's ours. We don't, it just felt very strange to like, how do you choose? Um, so we prayed about it and slowly but surely one of the little boys became unavailable and um, the other little boy kind of faded off the radar and we were down to our son. We were highly naive to what it would mean to bring a child into our life um, that wasn't white. Uh, we kind of were in the camp of, well, love just covers everything and then like, we don't see color and you know, love doesn't see color and we've really learned through the past like four years how much love does see color, that's not a bad thing and how it's um, the fact that our kids are black, it brings a richness to who they are, not something we want to ignore. I think the biggest thing for me has been learning to stop talking and start listening. Um, like I said, we had the privilege of not really having to look at or think about um, racial tension or wounds or that sort of stuff in our country um, until it was part of our family. Um, so for me, it was kind of putting all my preconceived notions aside and just listening to the people of color in my life, uh, their lived experiences, and what they were saying they were experiencing without um, inserting myself into that or my own preconceived ideas. The plan for healing in the world is the church. And so um, seeing more and more even um, white congregations and churches and spiritual leaders stepping in and being like, yeah, maybe there's something going on here we should say something about has been incredibly encouraging because I don't think that healing comes from any place else. We are in no way their savior. Um, and people have told us for the last five years how amazing we are for adopting and adopting kids from foster care. And we've just said, you know what? Uh, we're not their God. Our job is to show them Jesus is your savior. You know, Anthony is my hero because he, <laughs> he had no reason to trust us um, or trust adults at all and came in with so much fear and fear in a child looks like anger and acting out and it's really fear. And he has just let us um, love him and he's trusted us and he's opened his heart to us. And we've messed up more times than we can count on how we 
have uh, parented him and he is so forgiving and he's just so full of life and that reflects on our, us and they just change the whole dynamic and the feel of our family and our home. For me, I feel like, you know, God took me and he said, um, you know, I know like you might not feel worthy and you might feel unlovable and like you don't know where you belong. And he came along and said, you are worthy and you are lovable and you belong here with me. And um, you have a place to belong here. And for Drew and I, after experiencing something like that, experiencing our own adoption into God's family, um, it wasn't really a choice for us not to turn around and give that to somebody else. Such deep respect I have for Drew and Gina. And one night they came to our house a little over a year ago and um, we we're just having a good time and having some dinner. And um, I could tell it got awkward for a minute. And I wasn't sure why, but eventually one of them said, hey, we have something to tell you. And, you know, just know, and they were doing too many balancing statements. And, and, and I already knew their hearts. They didn't have to do that. But they said, we're going to be leaving Red Rocks Church. And they said, we want to move to a different area of town. They lived about a mile down from this Littleton campus. And they said, we, we, we just want to make our table bigger for our kids and we want to be in their world and we want them to be in our world and we want to celebrate um, their heritage and their history and, and we, want, we want to be so intentional, like I said, about the table that we're setting. And, and I think they thought that I was going to take that personal and I was going to be disappointed and I, I couldn't have been more proud and full of respect for my friends when they looked at us and said, hey, we're leaving Red Rocks Church and we're going to go be a part of something a tad bit more integrated right now to show our kids something beautiful and redemptive. And not all of you, in fact, most of us won't be called to, to how radical they've been intentional about their tables. But listen, all of us are a prayer away when we walk out of here from going, God, would you change the dynamics of the table I currently sit at? If it's one-sided and if it's overly comfortable and if it's full of a bunch of people that just look and think and talk and act and agree with everything I agree with, then God, would you expand the table? Because do you remember what we are about, Red Rocks Church? We are about making heaven more crowded. That's what we're about. My son's best friend from his class is a kid named Hamza. And Hamza comes over to our house and, and Jude goes over to his house and we have play dates. And, and Hamza is a Muslim. And Hamza is one of the most amazing kids that I've ever met. He's sharp and he's dynamic and he's smart and he's kind and he's hilarious. And I love when he's at our house and I've enjoyed my time getting to know his parents. And we are at fundamental odds when it comes to our belief system and what we think about life and the afterlife. And this is not a time in our nation to let fear dictate those type of relationships and hatred and discord. This is the time, man, heaven, if, if heaven's real and if hell's real and if we really believe what Jesus said when he said, Red Rocks, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, then listen to me. The, the, the call for us to be agents of reconciliation is the single most profoundly important thing that you will ever have to work through in this lifetime. And you cannot be an agent of reconciliation if there's hostility and prejudice that is still attached to the table that you sit at. And I'm pleading with you to be intentional about your tables. If every one of us in this church can simply pray that prayer, God, make my table look like heaven. Make my table look the way you want it to. God, send me some divine appointments of people 
who are going to enrich my life because they're your people, but they may look or think or act different. Second thing is this, and I just, point two is just a stolen quote from the word of God. And it's from the Apostle James. And it's simply this. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. If you want to be an agent of reconciliation, especially right now with this issue of race, then I want to say to you what a coach said to me once. Chad, God gave you two of these, one of these. Do the math. Right? And I do this for a living, right? Of all people who needs to hear point two, it's Chad. My job is to be quick to speak, right? I yap all the time. I yap. But you know what I want to be? The older I get, the more I'm maturing in Christ, the more I, I have such a deep respect for the gospel privilege that I have been given as a gift. The more I do that, the more I see how powerful it is to just be a good old-fashioned listener, right? Who doesn't want to have a friend in their life that's just a good old-fashioned listener? What if during this, this time of racial tension and hostility, we intentionally started sitting at some tables with people that don't look like us, and instead of trying to win an argument or a debate or to get our way or to make us feel a little bit temporarily better about ourselves by out-talking their plight against our plight, what if we just said, God, give me the merciful, graceful, reconciliation-type ears to just sit there and listen with no yeah buts at the end? Do you understand if Jesus used yeah, but in his vocabulary, we don't have salvation as we know it? Do you understand if Jesus came to this earth and the whole time God's calling him to do what he ultimately did for us, it was met with but a, a bunch of yeah, buts, God, but, but what about them? They're doing nothing, God, to meet me halfway. You understand the gospel is the proclamation that there's nothing halfway about what Jesus did for us. That's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks. It is an unfair, completely and ludicrously one-sided affair, Jesus to us. And now that the work's finished and we've received it, he says, now go get involved in some relationships. And if they're totally one-sided and if they're totally unfair and if, and if, and if they're giving nothing back to you in return, sit there and listen. You have the power to do that, not in your own self, but through the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. You're again, one prayer walking out of here from God going from saying to God, God, make me a person who listens better than I talk. God, free me from the need to defend ground. God, free me from the need to win an argument. Free me from the need, from the insecurity to think that I got to prove anything to anybody. When you've already been called saint by the one that spoke you into existence, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. When the one that spoke you into existence has already declared you holy and blameless, you no longer have to fight or prove anything to anyone. The, the kingdom of this world, especially the country of the United States, has built itself, especially during an election season, on this thing called talking points. Right? It's a multi-billion dollar media industry where whether it's Fox or MSNBC or CNN or whatever other ones you may watch, do you know what they all do? No matter what they believe about America, they just put pundits on, which are people who are just really good at talking. And they tell them what their talking points are based on what channel you turn to. And they go talk really good and talk really loud and talk really fast until America gets what we're trying to sell them. And can I just respectfully say the kingdom of God is built on something exactly opposite, not talking points. Gospel people are, are, are building a kingdom that's built on listening points. Listen to me. I say this lovingly as your pastor, but I say it seriously. If you're spending more time renewing your mind in the gospel of Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow or Anderson Cooper or Don Lemon, 
then you're going to be really astute at American affairs and really weak at God's good, pleasing and perfect will for you. Because the Bible says the only way that comes into our heart is not by what we listen to on the news, but what we read about the good news in the word of God. That those stay, they're trying to sap us of hope and create fear and hostility and teams. And the church has to rise above that and we have to recognize it and we have to be willing to, to talk about it and to go. We're people of hope. And the news in our country right now is, is hopeless. Turn it on for five minutes and you'll just no one turns off the, the news and goes, I just feel so much better now. Let's go to bed. <laughs> Woo! Right. Read Ephesians one and tell me how you feel afterwards. You're going to feel incredible. The gospel is the only pundit we need in our life to be what we're called to be. Every other thing, every other message you might hear is an attack on the hope that you're called to bring to this world. Let's be quick to listen, slow to speak. People in this world deserve that right now. As a white American, I have such a heart to, to have peace with my African-American brothers and sisters. I have such a heart for that. I don't want to fight. I don't want to defend my forefathers' history. I just want the gospel to free me up to listen and go, I'm so sorry. With no yeah buts. No, hey, meet me halfway. If they do... Bonus, that's, that's beautiful reconciliation. But even if they don't, I want to I be. And, and if you're African-American, the same applies to you. You just want to sit there and maybe listen to my story. and No, yeah, buts. Well, I mean, that's what the gospel can do for us. The Bible says this, guys, listen. Peacemakers who sow in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness. Don't you want that in your family? Don't you want that in your life? That's what reconciliation does. Slow to speak, quick to listen. Last but not least, band, you can come up. I got to go quick. We as a church are committed to being a church that puts stories ahead of stats. I've had too many people when I start to talk about the race issue hide behind stats. And stats are scientific. Uh, this isn't stats. Stats aren't moral, Okay. Stats aren't, are like money. They're nothing until they get in someone's hand, right? Stats are scientific. They're informative. They're great. But listen to me. There's this thing in my world, in the in pastoral world, that you learn in seminary. It, it's this term called proof texting. Okay, and proof texting is simply this. Okay, we're going to learn something for a second. Proof texting is when you take an isolated passage of Scripture and you build a whole theology around it. Because the, the number one rule of interpreting Scripture is all other Scripture interprets that Scripture. In other words, you can't fully talk about the integrity and the meaning of that scripture unless you know the full story, Genesis to Revelations, right? And anything less is called proof texting. You isolate something to create a narrative that you want to be comfortable with, right? Stats do that exact same thing. You can pull stats completely out of context with the whole rest of the story to win any argument you want in our country right now. I know next to nothing about gun control in the Second Amendment. Sorry if you think less of me. It's never been a thought of mine or a passion of mine. And I sat one night when, when, when the Second Amendment was the heated debate and talking point on the news. And I, I watched Fox for a while. And they gave a bunch of stats. And they gave these incredible arguments. 
based on stats about the Second Amendment. And then I turned to MSNBC and they were talking about the same thing. And I'm, again, very naive to, to this issue. And they started giving a bunch of stats. And, and at first I was listening to Fox News going, that's totally right. And then I started listening to them and I go, wait a minute. I think they're totally right. And they were talking about the exact same thing and both using what? Stats. We're not a church that hides behind stats and then goes and sits back at the comfortable table. We're not going to be those people. We're going to be a church that looks at the stories behind statistics. We're going to look at, hey, not just the stat of, of a behavior. We're going to look at, hey, what was the source of that? Let's talk about that. Let's get to that. Let me hear your plight. Let me hear your story. Let me suspend my judgment over your actions for a minute so I can hear what got you here in the first place because I know you weren't born in this world going, I really want to ruin my life. None of us are, right? I want us to be first responders on the scene, helping people like the Good Samaritan. Not vetting them and walking by and going, oh, they don't qualify, they don't qualify, they'll make me unclean, I'll get a bad rap if I help them. This guy just said, someone's in trouble, I'm gonna go help. I'll ask questions later, maybe. And he just radically helps them and picks up the tab. I want our church to be those kind of people. And I know we can be that kind of church. I want our table to get so much broader in the next decade. I want this church to look completely way more like heaven in the next decade. And it's not going to take a good sermon from me. It's going to take every single one of us at all of our campuses walking out of the doors and going, God, divinely change the dynamics of the table that I currently sit at. Give me some divine appointments of diversity, God. And then secondly, God, give me the grace to be a listener more than a talker. You want to talk about reconciliation? You want to talk about beautiful? Who doesn't need someone to listen to them? We can be that. That's the security we've been given in our birthright that nobody else on planet earth can fully walk in. That, that silence of Jesus just confounded people all the time. Like, you should speak up right now and defend yourself. He's like, I'm good. I'm good. God's plan's unstoppable, can't be thwarted. I don't have to defend myself right now. It's called meekness. It's power under control. That's the power we have in grace. Do you guys understand that? That's the people we can be, and it's going to change the world if we believe it. And if we're courageous enough to peer into the deepest parts of our heart and go, God, if there is any prejudice that could lead to bigotry, that could lead to racism, God, would you deal with it in any way you see fit to deal with it? Because I don't want to waste one ounce of heart space on something as futile and dangerous as racism, bigotry, prejudice. You guys at all campuses, let's stand. I've said my piece. I'm going to pray and we're going to work this out in worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that the prophet Isaiah said that your word never returns back to you void. It always accomplishes the purpose for with which it was sent. God, I pray that within moments of this message being done and as people walk out of their respected campuses and start to ask you to bring divine appointments of diversity, God, that you would answer it quickly. I know you're going to because this is your heart, God. I pray that we would be the most beautiful agents of reconciliation in all of the Denver metro area, simply founded upon the, the, the radical gift of grace that you bestowed on us first. May we be those kind of people for your glory. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's worship at every campus.